Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. This episode is sort of a former contracting officer's roundtable. Kevin connected with Shelley Hall and Steve Lucianetti, both former contracting officers, to discuss what is and what is not worth fighting for in the government acquisition world, whether it's in source selection or during contract execution. Thanks to the wonders of the internet, the audio is a little sketchy at times, so please bear with us. Steve and Shelley are both members of the Skyway team, so it's fitting that this episode is brought to us by Skyway Acquisition. If you're frustrated with your progress in the government market, Skyway's team of former contracting officers helps their customers of all sizes to move faster, win more contracts, and manage their contracts more effectively. Visit AskSkyway.com to learn more. Okay, let's get started. I heard an axiom recently that every decision divides. And the simplicity of that is really kind of awesome, but it's really starkly true in government contracts. I mean, as a contracting officer, every decision you make is leading down a certain path. And whether it's a competitive contract or it's a sole source contract, every decision you make along the way, some people are going to love it, some people are not going to like it, and some people are going to you know, fly out be furious and, and, and want to be fighting over it. So sometimes the acquisition process is this bizarre combination of you know, kind of a choose your own adventure book and a Plinko board. The Plinko board's the, the pegboard where you, you, you put like the, the little hockey puck down and it hops down back and forth and you end up not knowing where the, the, the hockey puck's going to end at the bottom. And so that's kind of the process we have here is every decision you make, some create fights. That is very true. I have seen that a lot in the, the decision to what you're going to purchase and the requirements that you're going to develop. Uh, industry many times will be right there at your side trying to push you in one direction or another. And some people are not happy when you decide to go in a different direction. Well, um, I think it's hard on the contracting side too, because I've had both program managers and contract specialists say, you know, I want the path. I want the book. I want the one way to do every acquisition and there is no one way there's a thousand ways to do every acquisition and yeah you, you can't make everybody happy there you go and sometimes it ends in fights so each stage of the acquisition because there are all these decisions to be made some are unchangeable some are some the, the there may be four or five paths but when you go down this path these are the rules you have to follow so you can't win when you fight over things that can't be changed so the this episode will kind of walk through some of the scenarios, some things that are worth fighting for because you can influence them and change them. And some things you're just not going to change anybody's mind. So don't waste your time and energy doing that. But first, let's say thanks. I want to say thanks on this episode to Scott Williams from Survitech. He likes and shares our content, not just on LinkedIn, but also on Facebook. Uh, he actually wrote a really great review of my book, which I'll send you for free if you just ask for it. Send me an email. I'll send you a free copy. But posting and sharing our content is the best way to compound our efforts for people to find our content and the other 95% of people in government contracts who don't know that the podcast exists will find us if our listeners share the content. So thanks Scott for doing that. Let's start with the definition of fighting. What do we mean by fighting? Well, it's really what it sounds like is that we've formally squared off. So think in terms of we've decided to hire an attorney. We've decided to protest. Uh, We're going to dig in our heels or, or, or lawyer up and not change our mind not be open to changing our mind. And sometimes that's an opinion. Sometimes it's a regulation, but oftentimes it can lead to disputes, claims, you know, terminations, and all those scary terms that, that are all over the place in the bar. The things that we are not willing to bend on, 
and we end up getting into a fight. And what happens is sometimes as a contracting officer, we have you know, three of us on here this time, there are things that you're just not going to win that fight. So when people know that they can't win the fight, they won't even continue down the path of arguing over it. And so that's where we'll go today. So let's start with, I'm doing too much talking. Let's start with why we square off. The expectation is that an acquisition, if it's pre-award, or the contract post-award will be fair, in quotes. But here's the catch. Fair is subjective. And in, well, in most cases, the definition of fair, it's an opinion. It's somebody's opinion of the acquisition plan was a set of decisions that were decided on by people throughout the process, which result in an opinion and a determination of who's going to keep going in a competition, for example. The competitive range determination is the contracting officer's decision. It is an opinion. It is a judgment call. It's a decision that some people will like, those that made it to the competitive range, and some people won't like, the ones who didn't make it to the competitive range. The question is, are these things worth fighting over? So both sides, government and industry, tend to fight in certain areas. They want to be heard, and they want their way. And so what areas can we talk about to, to understand that whether it's inexperience that's causing people to have a lack of context that says, oh, there must be a conspiracy. I'm going to fight until I unpack that conspiracy. Or if they have so much time and effort invested in a path that they're going to hold on to the bitter end to say, this is the way we will do it. We will keep protesting. We'll keep fighting. Or in your example, Shelly, they, they look for the one way. And they can't grasp the idea that this acquisition plan, while worked last time, isn't going to work this time. because. So how is the government doing this? Let me, let, me, let me shut up a little bit and let you guys talk. How is the government doing this kind of stuff? From the government side, one of the things I've seen is it's a source selection that's uh, been going ongoing now for, I don't know, about seven, eight years. They, uh, they want to do a consolidated requirement, and they were very committed to this consolidated requirement and their very specific evaluation criteria, and it, it got protested. They did about three and a half years through the first award, got protested, was sustained. They said they were going to take corrective action. They were going to, you know, massage some things. But they were so committed to this particular approach that while they did change some things, they've really never changed anything substantively enough to address the protest. So they made a second award, which was again protested. And then, you know, it's now been protested a third time. So they are never, ever going to get a contract award because they are so set on exactly what they're looking for that it's just never going to get awarded. And to me, that's just silly. So you need to say, okay, how can we fix this for real, not just change something, a few words here and there. Now, what's the definition of insanity? It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. All right, Steve, so, so pick on the industry side. When dealing with a contracting officer, make sure that you always keep in mind that the don't focus on winning the one battle because it's a you know it's a long war. So you want to always per, perceive yourself as being helpful to a contracting officer. So how you fight and when you fight is very important because in the long term, what you want to do is to be seen by the contracting officer as a reasonable contractor who's going to be focused on performing for the government and delivering a good product not fighting over every little thing, trying to maximize your profit with, while sacrificing your performance to the government because the contracting officer is concerned about performance. And that's what he wants to see. Let me jump into the acquisition and execution time zones. 
so this applies everywhere. We're focusing mostly today on the acquisition time zones and the pre-award side, but we do have a couple of examples of post-award. But understanding which zone you're in, for that matter, understanding when is a fight you can win. <laughs> there are things that are worth fighting for during the market research zone that you just can't win during the source selection zone, which is probably a whole other podcast for a different day. The point is they apply to all of the acquisition and execution time zones. So let's get into some examples. Let's go scenario time. We'll start with what's not worth fighting over on the pre-award side. So we're, we're talking about acquisition time zone. We're talking before the contract is awarded. But knowing what not to fight over is critical because the most valuable resource we have is time. And if you're gobbling up your time fighting over stuff you can't win, you're going you're gonna to be much worse off because your return on your time ends up being zero. Here are a couple of examples of things that are not worth the fight in the acquisition time zones before award. The first one is the small business set-aside decision, right? After the RFP has been released, the small business set-aside has been decided, the RFP has been released as a small business set-aside, and you don't think it should be that type of small business. That's not something you can win. So Shelly, what, what would your answer be if somebody said, I need you to change the small business set-aside after you just dropped an RFP? I would have said the time for you to have addressed that would have been during the capability statement because had you provided me with a capability statement, then I would have had some expectation, you know, that I would have had an economically disadvantaged woman in small business, at least two of them, or at least two service disabled veteran in small businesses, because it's all that result of that market research that leads to that small business decision set aside. So if they're not responding to the capabilities packages, then, you know, we've got skewed data. Yeah, and it's really hard to, to rewind that. You know, the, the, there are a lot of approvals that go into that, and even more so if it's not a small business set-aside. To get it approved, it's, it's a journey to get people to buy off on the fact that no small business can do this. And then you put up the RFP and somebody says, oh, well, we could have done that. And I'm, and, you know, I'm hitting my head on the desk going, dude, it, I can't rewind this whole process without losing another two months. And we've proven that no small business could do it until you came out of the blue. And So that is a battle that's really hard to fight. I would argue just go look for another opportunity. And, and just to tag on to that a little bit, Kevin, it, what you said is that small business set-aside is not solely the contracting officer's decision. There's a small business liaison folks. There's the small business administration, anything, and, and DOD, anything over $25,000. There's a form that has to be approved by them. So you have to provide them your market research and this form, and they have to sign off on that. And sometimes it has to go up to headquarters depending on the dollar value, these approvals. And so, yeah, you've already gotten a huge people to buy into your decision. And so you're, you're, it's too late to put a horse back in the barn at that point in time after the RFP has been released. Yeah, I like that. It's too late to put the horse back in the barn. All right, next example is there's a fine line between helping with the requirement, helping to shape the requirement, versus pushing a requirement that you actually want to sell your own product. So Steve, tell me how that one impacts you when you're, when you're dropping RFPs. Well, a lot of times we do, you know, we will synopsize our requirement stating all of, you know, what set aside we're going to use and what it is we're looking for. And then we ask for industry, you know, we notify industry of what our intended is to do. And that is the opportunity for industry to come in and say, Hey, you know, this is what we have. Uh, we think we can do this. This is our capability because we think that you haven't considered our product and, and what this is. Um, and that is a time to go help the contracting officer, educate him about the marketplace and what is available. 
Because remember, he's only getting information from the customer who once has a requirement, and that customer may be very focused on one product and not know about other products. However, don't be sitting there and telling me that if I've asked for a drone that can have a range of 200 miles, that I should be considering your drone that has a range of 20 miles. And it's the best that, you know, it's a really great drone and it can do all these things. And you're like, did you read the requirement? And you're going to fight with me over my decision later on not to include, change that requirement when I said 200 miles. And that is a true story. That is the kind of thing that you don't want to get into where you're pushing to sell your product, trying to tell the government that, oh, you don't need that. And the government says, well, yes, I do. And we get into that fight. Oh, and, and, uh, and remember, this, this requirement, this 200 miles, is coming from the customer. I mean, our customer is expecting us to give them, a, in this case, a drone. And, and I've got, I got examples of, of service contracts. I got examples of range of a vehicle once where this happened, where industry said, oh, yeah, well, this, the best vehicle does this. And I'm saying the requirement which came from my customer, who's a person that's relying on me to buy something they can actually use, told me they needed, in this case, actually it was a 300-mile range. I can also go back and say that there was a time when I had a requirement out there and industry came back and said, are you sure you really want this? Because what you're doing is going to make it very, very hard for industry to produce this, this product. And they gave us examples of some of the requirements in there and said, look, the industry standard is this and this is that. And we went back to our requirements people and we said, do you agree? And they went, holy cow, we got this wrong. They're right. They're, they weren't trying to drive the requirement. They were trying to help the government get the best requirement. So telling me that I don't need something is wrong. Telling me, hey, are you sure you want this? Because this is the reason why we think this might hurt you. It's just a different approach about how you're trying to help the government get what it needs. Yeah, it's a great example of the difference in tone. Okay, so third example, and this is toward the tail end of the acquisition time zones, is when the evaluation process has, is underway and arguing about the degree to which something is a green or blue rating in a best value evaluation where the value that you think you bring isn't the same as what the evaluation, or in this case, the contracting officer's determination says. You know, one of the things, and I think Steve used the example, is somebody submits a proposal for something that's better than, in their mind, better than something else. So it's, it's lighter weight, uh, it's a quicker delivery, it's whatever. But if it's, if it's not part of that best value criteria, then it's, it's irrelevant. The government wants what the government wants, and they usually don't have a budget anymore to pay for, if they have a budget at all, since we're coming up to another continuing resolution vote. Sorry, just throw that in there. To pay extra for a faster delivery when the customer couldn't care less about that. Okay, so now we're going to switch to the post-award side, and we're still talking about what's not worth fighting over. And so the first example we came up with was the award to an offer under an LPTA when you're not the lowest price. So Shelley, that's one of your favorites. So what, talk me through that one. It is my favorite because we, we get a lot, you know, a, little, a lot of calls from our community members that say, I didn't win and I'm going to protest. And I ask them two questions. I say, was it, was it an LBTA? You know, what type methodology did they use? And if they say, yes, it was LBTA, then I ask, were you the lowest price? And they'll say, well, no. And I said, no, no use protesting because, you know, if you've been found technically acceptable and you have a higher price, it just goes against logic 
that there's anything to protest because it's the lowest price technically acceptable award. It says it right in the methodology. So what would you protest? And you might not even be number three or number 90. You know, it's, it's, you don't know where you fell price-wise, but there's no use arguing that. Now, if it's the best value, it might flow over to the other chart where we talk about what it is worth fighting for. Yeah, and, and that's one of those that it's an emotional thing to want to fight over, but you just, you can't win it. So save yourself the headache. And, and actually, this has a lot more to do with targeting the right opportunities than it does about fighting afterwards. But that's, again, we have lots of content about that. Shelly, what I have seen happen in that low price thing is not the argument about, I should have gotten a contract because I was this price. It's the argument, well, that guy can't afford to, he can't sell it at that price. And I'm like, there's no defense. There's really no argument about that. Um, unfortunately, contracting officers sometimes find themselves in, in that position when they, and it's a risk of LPTA. Unless you can prove that that product is not available at that price somehow or other, you kind of lock yourself into, if I said lowest price and some guy comes in and says, I can sell it for a dollar and everybody else says, how can he sell it for a dollar? It's, I don't see how you can do it. You can make the argument sometimes that it's not a, uh, it's an unrealistic price, but the contracting officer has to make that argument. You can't make it for him. And if you challenge his decision to say, well, he can't afford it, you know, they can't be sold at that price. He's going to go, okay, fine. I'm taking that risk and giving them that contract for a dollar for that unit. And if he doesn't perform, depending on the type of contract, he's going to wind up in a termination or I'm just going to wind up canceling. If it's like a purchase order, I'm going to wind up canceling and having to go back. And it's on me. That's a really valid point of why we have to, from the government side, it's like really consider the risk of LPTA. Because if you get trapped into, like you legally have to award to somebody that wrote a good proposal, even though you're suspicious that they may not be able to deliver. You're trapped. So I am so old, but I, I have actually done IFBs, invitation for bids. And that was the old day where you set your requirement exactly what it was. And it was whatever was the lowest price. And as long as he met the requirement, boom, you went with it. And I can't tell you the number of times that those contracts wound up not being performed on. And they just went, ah, I can't do it at that price. And, and you had no recourse. Nope. Wow. Yeah, great lesson in that one. The next one is arguing over clause language of the contract that was in the RFP. So after the contract was awarded, there's a clause that the contractor doesn't like. Steve, I'll let you tackle that one. Yeah, there's a difference between terms and clauses. When you have FAR clauses and DFAR clauses, for the, if you're doing a DOD contract, those clauses are, are legal clauses, and there's no changing that language. Now, if you don't like a particular clause and you don't think your company can meet that particular clause, then your, your argument is to put an exception in your proposal and say, I take exception to that clause. I don't want to do it. The government would then have to deal with that before he awarded that contract. Making that decision to, to not want to adhere to a clause can cause you to not win a contract. So be careful about doing that. But if you sign the contract with that clause in there, I'll come back to later on and try and fight over it because we're going to it was in the contract. You knew it ahead of time. I'm sorry. You're stuck with it. Terms are a different thing. Terms can always be changed because terms are kind of agreed upon. And that's usually what we used to call H clauses and Section H, special clauses that you put in there. And they're always negotiable. But FAR and DFAR clauses, they're not. 
and there are hundreds of them <laughs> and they can fill pages and pages. Okay, let's not despair. There are things that are worth arguing over. So the acquisition system does have checks and balances and they're designed to create some equality. But the equality only exists during certain time periods. Leading up to the RFP, there's not a whole lot of equality because some people have been tracking it. There's an incumbent. Some people are already in the industry. Some people just stumbled upon the FBO announcement. <laughs> there's not as much equality. But during the acquisition time zones, there are things that are worth fighting for. The first one you can bring up that creates some equality, they have the ability to, to debate it. It may actually be worth going to the mat over is whether or not something should be set aside for small business before the RFP. We talked about what's not worth fighting about is the small business set aside after the RFP comes out. But we're talking about before. We're talking about the market research zone. So Shelly, what should somebody say to you to get you to make a small business set aside before the RFP goes out? Well, and that's, and that's a good question. And the, and the other thing to know is not just with the CO, but you know, before the RFP release, those contractors can talk to, again, the small regional small business office, the local small business office, um, you know, they can even, if they feel strongly enough about it, they can appeal to the office of hearings and appeals for small business. And the interesting thing is that, you know, that's not a, that's a, not a court of federal claims appeal. That's not a GAO protest. That is an actual, a very specific protest that they're filing, a challenge that they're filing with the Office of Hearing and Appeals about why it should have been a set aside. And some of them are very compelling. You know, where they'll say, well, yeah, they did market research, but, you know, I can go on and, and Google something and find out that there's 25 small businesses that provide this or 25 services that were better known. So they didn't have, it wasn't due diligence and they should. So, so yes, I think, you know, for the most part, you welcome that um, before the RFP release as much information as possible to input, to, to make that decision because quite frankly, everybody is being driven towards doing small business. I'm not saying that as a bad thing. I'm just saying it as a, as a truth. And so uh, contracting officers want to know about those hub zones and EDWSDs and SDBOSDs. They want to know about those so they can use those set-asides. Yeah, so that's something you want to focus on. And if they're not hearing you, that's worth the fight, potentially. Okay, next one. So something potentially worth fighting is when you see unduly restrictive requirements in an RFP or in some competitive process. So Steve, I'll let you jump on that one. Yeah, industry is right to come back and say, look, the, the requirements that you've put in there are unduly restrictive in the sense that you have so limited the uh, ability for industry to compete that it really, you're pushing towards one product and it's obvious that you're pushing towards one product um, if you know the, the marketplace. A good example was about 10 years ago, I did one where we were looking for a system to be able to judge height as helicopters landed in dusty, like over in Iraq and, and Afghanistan because pilots were losing altitude because they couldn't see because of the dust cloud. And the requirement came over as laser-based. And industry came back and said, why only lasers? Why couldn't you use radar? And the answer back from, well, we want laser. We think laser is better. I said, yeah, why? Well, we just think it is. And I said, well, industry has a lot of radar systems, and there's more than one person who's talking about radars. And they had to back off of that. And, and industry was right to come back and say, you're not considering all the possibilities. So if you're there to inform government as to, hey, you're not considering all the best products, that's a really good thing to fight about. Not fighting over, well, fighting over what the government wants 
and saying, well, you don't really need that system. You should buy something else or something like that. Yeah, giving them the other options, making them aware of the other options that, yeah. that I, and it, it's funny, I got a couple of, of, some of those come from the requirements folks, some of those come from a narrow scope, uh, some of them come from the incumbent being there a long time and the expectation of the customer is, oh, it has to be done this way. So using your, your laser thing, let's say that's been around for 20 years, and like we've always done it with lasers, therefore the requirement is lasers. And you know, meanwhile, technology's marched along and it's not the only way. Right. And also I've seen it in the service side where I have seen people come in and say, well, you know, we have to have somebody who was in the military fill this position and it's a civilian position. And you're like, well, why do they have to be in the military? Well, have been in the military. And you're like, well, that's what we want. We want somebody who understands the system. I said, well, that's great. You can put the requirements for the understanding in there, but for you to put in that they've had to have served in the military, I think is I have argued is an unduly restrictive requirement because you could work for the government as a civilian for 30 years right next to that E6 or E5 that you want, and you could be just as experienced as him and never have once served in the military. So that's a good example of how people can get, you know, requirements can get overly restrictive. All right, Shelly, so give me some other examples of things that are that are worth fighting over on the pre-award side. There's a ton of them, but you know the things that come right off the top of my head are the NAICS codes. You know, you can challenge NAICS codes. Again, you can challenge that through you know the contracting officer, but you can also go to the Office of Hearing and Appeals, the small business. And why do you want to challenge that? Well, because they may be using a NAICS code that makes you something other than a small business. And so you want that NAICS code that's going to be broad enough that you're going to qualify as a small business under that NAICS code. So you can bid on the requirement. And then the other thing is like the evaluation criteria. You know, there can be evaluation criteria that can be unduly restrictive also, since we, you know, we were just talking about that, that is going to be something that you can see where they've tried to craft the evaluation criteria so they're going to be able to get to the specific contractor that they want to, and they can't do that. I mean, it has to be fair evaluation criteria. That, that's really, you know, as, as Steve said, we can't be arbitrary and Precious that we, we do learn that first thing. You know, it's always about a level playing field. You know, and if there's something that comes up and you want to know whether you can challenge it or not, call the CO and say, I'm not happy with XYZ. And is that something I can challenge? Uh, and if you can challenge it, you know, give it a shot as long as you're committed to that you believe it should be changed. And, and there's a, there's, <laughs> there are about five or six other ones pop in my head, but let's keep us moving because this is already a lot of content to go through. Okay, last one. So now we're, we're still on the what is worth fighting for, and that, but now we're on the execution time zones. Now we're on the post-award. The first one, because Shelly, you've become quite adept at helping our customers do this one, is CPARS rating. How do you do that? CPARS is a, is a process, and you know, I don't think it got quite as much visibility in the past as it is now. All agencies are looking at this as a, as a metric now, and so they've really kind of created a process for the CPARs. And in the past, it was kind of like, yeah, we'll do a CPARs, maybe whatever. But now, you know, they're tracked and they're reported to the head of the agency. And, you know, if you, if you get um, a, a bad CPARs, a parse, and I want to qualify that, you know, you might get a satisfactory in one of the criteria. But to you, when you know that you've done something above and beyond to in that particular area, be it, you know, cost control or schedule or whatever, you might want to fight that as satisfactory to get something higher than that. 
But if you get a bad CPARS, you definitely need to fight it. It is your company's reputation that's on the line. It's what's going to be used in future source selections to evaluate past performance for your company. And you start with the contracting officer and you know, go through the process. When it comes to you, you reply back that you do not concur. That's the most important thing. And then that kind of puts the process on hold until it is resolved. And if they tell you that CPARS ratings cannot be changed, that is absolutely untrue. CPARS can be changed at any point in time. They could even be changed after they've been finalized. So challenge the CPARS any time that you can when you feel that you've been given an unfair evaluation. And we have a whole podcast episode that you and Paul did about about CPARS, about the rating system. Um, and, and keep in mind that the, the government folks are, they're going to be as, or they should be, as honest as they can be. Uh, so if you don't perform well <laughs> and you can't defend a bad CPARS, that's a different problem. So the, fir- the first issue is you're being rated. The second issue is be, make sure you're being rated fairly. And if you're not, then yeah, there is a process for that. Okay, uh, next one is scope creep. So, Steve, I'll, I'll let you tackle scope creep. But why is scope creep worth fighting over? When you sign up to do something with the government, you expect them to kind of stick to the requirement because that's what you bid, and that's how you've priced your proposal, and that's how you, you know, you're basing your profits off of that. And yes, there are there are times when you're going to discover in the process of performance, service contracts, especially where hey, we didn't anticipate this problem. It's gotten bigger than we than we thought it was going to be. We need a few more people. We need more time stuff like that, you have a right to go back and say, look, government, you said you thought you were going to do it with this number of people in this amount of time to grow it and not expect me to come back and want more money for it. It's not fair. And you should, you should point it out before you do any of that. Do not expand your performance based on direction from a customer without having a modification to your contract that allows you to go do that. It's okay to say no to a customer when he's going outside the scope of the contract. And it's worth fighting for if, if he's put stuff on there and say, look, I'm not going to do that. That's not in my contract. And until it's added, I'm not going to do it because you nope. risk doing it for free. Okay, last one. The obvious deviation from a competitive evaluation process. So when a contract is awarded and it wasn't evaluated like, it's, like the government said they would do it, that's worth fighting over. Shelly, I'll let you attack that one. What, what's interesting is because I track uh, pro GAO protest decisions because it's something that I put in our This Week in Contracting, uh, in Government Contracting, my own little podcast. It's interesting to me that that's probably the most sustained protest is that the government did not follow or did not document that they followed the evaluation process they said they were going to use in the RFP. The deal is, you know, they develop this evaluation process and a thousand people review it and it gets tweaked. And regardless of what that evaluation process says, those technical folks that are doing the actual evaluation have in their mind what they're looking for, which can be very different from what is written down as the evaluation process. And I had one evaluator tell me, they said, well, I have the list in my mind. I'm like, you know, you have to have what's in the con, in the RFP. That's what you need to have. So when they deviate from that competitive evaluation process, what they said they were going to do, then definitely protest and fight over that. Absolutely. Because they should not ever be doing that. And then document it. Because I'll tell you what, if you don't document that you followed the process, 
you're still going to lose under a protest. One of the most fun technical evaluations I ever had was an argument between two, there was a split in a technical team. Some people wanted uh, what they called uh, electrical process and one, some people wanted a mechanical process. RFP said either one was perfectly acceptable, but there was bias in the evaluation. And literally you'd get one evaluation from one evaluator that said, oh, not so good because he was a mechanical guy and this was an electrical one. And the electrical guy would say bad things about the mechanical one. We went around in circles for weeks trying to get the technical team to come to a consensus. So as a contracting person, be aware that those biases exist. As a contractor, be aware of those biases could exist when you're when you look at the product line out there and be very aware that make sure the government has not biased their evaluation criteria or their evaluation process towards one particular solution. Yeah, and a pre, it's interesting. That's a great example of on the pre-award side, if you see you have it has to be a mechanical solution and you're an electrical solution, that's when you ask the question of why does this have to be one or the other? Well, in your scenario, they said both. And so that discussion ends up being debated during the evaluation process. Okay, well, we, we could have you know, 100 other examples, but let's, let's, let's stop there. This is really, really great stuff. I really appreciate you guys taking the time. All right, thanks, folks. I will see you next time, and have a good day. Whew, okay, that's it for this episode. I really like how the balance came out during the conversation. Some things don't bother fighting. You're probably not going to get anywhere. But other things, contracting officers want contractors to fight for. Great episode. Thanks to Kevin, Steve, and Shelly. And thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next week.